And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. But the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writing, how will you believe my words? Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we are continuing our series this morning, our teaching series in the book of John. We've come to that place in the book of John where Jesus is starting to encounter some opposition. He's still doing everything that he had already been doing. He's engaging different people in different ways, meeting their unique physical and their spiritual needs in such a way that they get to see something of him that he hadn't revealed before. Up to this point, he's been pretty well received, but now we come to chapter 5 where he's healed a man. We studied that last week. But that healing has exposed how Jesus has a very different agenda than the organized religion of his day. The Jewish leaders don't like what he's doing because the way that he's doing it challenges their belief that if they just work hard enough, if they just follow the ethical rules that they've laid down for themselves, they can make themselves good enough for God. God will be happy with them. He'll smile at them a little bit more. And when they pressure Jesus to change, Jesus doesn't. He doesn't play their game. He doesn't argue with them at the level of their rules. He doesn't try to answer which of their rules are most important, which do they have to follow, which do they not have to follow. Instead, he takes the conversation up to a whole new level. In verse 18, he calls God his own father, makes himself equal with God. That's hard for the people there to swallow. The Jewish world had very firm categories. There was the one divine being, God, the creator, and then there was everything else the very, very, very special but not divine creation that the Creator had made. The Jewish mind had no category for anything in between, no room for things like the Gentile mindset did, no room to envision the gods being so impressed with an extraordinary human that they elevated him to some godlike status. 
no room to imagine something like a demigod, the result of a god impregnating a human being producing a child. That midway kind of category between God and humans did not exist in the Jewish worldview. It would have been abhorrent to them. And here's this man, Jesus, this human being, claiming equality with God, claiming that he's on the same level with God, that he's not a blend of God and man, but he's both at the same time, fully human, fully God. That was hard for people to swallow back then. It's actually hard for people to swallow now. I remember talking with a woman one time who said to me, I believe that Jesus was a great man. He was a good teacher. I don't believe he was God. That's just something that his followers made up about him after he died. Now, what would you say to her? How would you respond? Or maybe you've had this experience. You've had someone say to you, Jesus never claimed to be God. You can't find a verse where he said that. Others claimed that he was a God, not the God. Occasionally, people heard him say that he was the Son of God, but he also said things like, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So when he called himself the Son of God, he wasn't really claiming any special divinity for himself. It was more that he was something that was kind of, you know, God-like, that there was some divine spark inside of his humanity, something that all of us have equal access to. What do you say to something like that? How do you respond? One of the things that I've found helpful is to say, okay, let's accept your premise for a moment. Your belief that Jesus was this great man, this good teacher, but not God. Let's act as if that was true. And let's see how well your theory makes sense of the rest of the data that we have then about Jesus. In other words, what am I saying there? I'm saying it's not just Christians who need to give reasons for why our faith is reasonable. It's not just you and me who have to defend our faith, but so also does the other person. Because they have a faith. They have a conviction. They have a belief about Jesus. And they have to defend that faith. They have to defend their belief just as much as you and I do. That means it's totally legitimate to ask them to defend themselves. So you ask them, okay, if Jesus was not claiming to be God, how come at times the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him? Like they do here in chapter 5, verse 18. You can back up and you can recount the story. The only thing that he's done is heal a man who'd been trapped in his body for 38 years and then explained why he did that on a Sabbath day by saying, verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. And their reaction to that very simple statement is to say, Let's kill him. Doesn't that sound kind of extreme? If all he's doing is merely claiming that he has some godlike divine spark inside of him, like all the rest of us have? See, if someone wants to say to you, Jesus never claimed to be God in any truly divine sense, so in a sense that was distinct from all other human beings, then the Jewish leader's response to him just doesn't make any sense. The data that you have does not fit that theory. If you think about it, you start realizing, well, there's a number of other instances in the Gospels where people wanted to kill him. That's a really strong reaction if all he is is a good teacher who helped people and healed them. In other words, the belief that Jesus never claimed to be God, but that that was something that his disciples claimed for him later, that belief just does not hold up when you start to look at the rest of the data. Jesus' way of expressing himself may not be always clear to us moderns. We might not always quickly get the point of what he was trying to say. 
but there was nothing vague about what he was saying to his contemporaries who were listening 2,000 years ago. They understood exactly that he was saying he was equal with God. They were, they were under no delusions as to what he meant. Now, let's, let's take a step back and just ask the question, what, what, what am I trying to do in that kind of an interaction? What am I urging, inviting you to be trying to do as you talk to other people? In that moment, you're helping someone have less confidence in their belief. You're helping them doubt their belief that Jesus is just an ordinary human being. You're giving them reasons not to continue in unbelief. That's good, but that's only half. Then you have to do more because that's not the same as giving someone reasons to believe. You're giving them reasons not to continue in unbelief, but then you have to give them reasons to believe because they could still come back and say, okay, I see that Jesus did claim to be God, but just because he claimed that doesn't make it true. I don't believe he was. He could have been mistaken. He, he could have been crazy. He could have talked himself into believing something that wasn't true. He, he might have been lying. He might have been saying something to everyone else that he didn't really believe. All those are possibilities. But if you start to pursue each one of those, you realize none of those work either. Take the idea that maybe Jesus was mistaken about his identity, that he was crazy, that he was mentally unbalanced. If that's the case, nobody's going to try to kill him. You don't try to kill someone who is confused, someone who is deluded, someone who's just talked themselves into believing something that isn't true. What do you do with someone like that? You, you try to reason with them. If that doesn't work, what do you do? You, you probably just ignore them, right? You, you, you walk away from them. You don't try to kill them. Or if Jesus is actually lying about his identity, well, then you have a different kind of problem. Because if he says that he's God when he knows he isn't, how on earth can he claim he's a good man? How on earth can he say he's a great teacher? If he's lying deliberately, trying to deceive you, he can't be a great teacher. He can't be an ethical teacher. He can be one or the other. He can be a great teacher or he can be a liar. He can't be both. Here's the conundrum of Jesus. When you look at him and when you investigate his life and when you read the kinds of things that he said and did, there's a puzzle. Because everyone acknowledged he was a great teacher. He lived what he taught to such an extreme that he never had to apologize, never had to confess sin, never had to ask forgiveness. He did not live the life of a liar. Everybody acknowledged he was a great teacher. His enemies thought he was a great teacher. We still acknowledge that. And yet, this great teacher said incredibly audacious things that no one in their right mind would say if they were simply a human being. For instance, think back to the night that he was arrested. His disciples try to prevent that arrest, and he stops them by saying, don't you realize that I can call down 12 angels right now if I wanted to? You think, really? <laughs> he has 12 legions of angels at his disposal in a moment. Who says things like that? Or another time, he says, no one comes to the Father. No one comes to God except through me. You can't get to God unless I get you there. I'm the only one who can do that. Slightly audacious kind of a thing to say. He claimed that he could forgive sins. He treated what someone else had done to someone else as though the real offense had been done to him personally. He treated himself as the one who was most wronged and that what was most needed was his forgiveness. Again, audacious. He claimed that he had always existed, audacious, and that he would come back at the end of the age to judge those who were living and those who were dead. He said things that put him in a class all by himself. 
utterly absurd things if he was only human. Things that the most egomaniacal person that you can imagine would not dream of saying. They wouldn't dream of saying those things because they, they just wouldn't be believed. You wouldn't try to kill them. You'd laugh at someone like that. You'd laugh at them and then you'd walk away. But nobody treated Jesus lightly. Instead, they polarized. Some wanted to kill him. Others believed him. Those who believed him were convinced that he was who he said he was. They were convinced that Father God, the creator, had sent him to this earth to do something that only God could do. Why did they believe that? It's not because they were gullible. They were the very last people on earth who could be fooled into believing that God became a human being. That category did not exist for them. So why did they believe? And you realize it's because there were reasons for them to believe. Reasons that Jesus says you also need. Verse 31 from today's passage. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. If I'm the only one telling you to believe in me, you should run the other direction. I love this about God. He could really come to this earth. He could demand that you just take his word for it, that he's God. He would be honest if he did that. It would be legitimate. He would be true. You'd have to listen to him. And yet you would be facing a terrible dilemma because you would be wondering in the back of your mind if what he said really was right or if you were being taken in by a charlatan. Jesus says, verse 31, you should not believe him simply because he says so. But then he doesn't leave you hanging either. He says there are reasons to believe, good reasons. There are witnesses, witnesses that what I'm saying is true, witnesses that will make sense to you, witnesses that you can see with your own eyes and understand, witnesses that will give you confidence in me. Jesus points to witnesses. See, real biblical Christianity is not this blind leap in the dark. It's not something that you just have to work yourself up to in some kind of emotion-driven crisis where, where you just decide, oh, I, I guess I'm just going to believe. Instead, there's something very solid underneath our faith, something solid that lets you meet God himself. There's reason to believe Jesus. That's what Jesus says. And then he points to three of those reasons in today's passage. And you and I need to know these reasons. You need to know them for yourself so that your faith can grow stronger. And you need to know them for the sake of other people. John, who wrote this book, was given these three reasons by Jesus. And now John is passing them along to you. They are for you. They're for you to deepen your faith. But if you understand the pattern, you realize that they're not just for you. They're not supposed to stop with you. They're for you to pass along to others, just like John has passed them on to you. So what are these witnesses? First, there's what John the Baptist says about Jesus. It's a different John than the one who wrote the book. Second, there's what Jesus' works say about Jesus. And thirdly, there's what Scripture says about Jesus. John the Baptist, Jesus' works, and Scripture all give you confidence that God really did send Jesus to do what only God could do so that you could know God so that you could be friends with him. First, John the Baptist. To understand John's place in history, you actually have to go back into the Old Testament, into the Hebrew Scriptures, to a prophet named Malachi. Malachi wrote about 450 years before Jesus was born. And in the last sentences of the last chapter of Malachi's book, it's the very last thing that God says to his people 
before he goes quiet for four and a half centuries. This is what you read. Behold, I will send you, God speaking, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The Lord says he's planning to come to earth personally. The great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. God's going to visit. But before God comes, someone else is going to come who's going to get ready for God's people for his coming. Someone who's going to call people to repent of how they've been living. Someone styled here as Elijah. And then after saying this, there's silence from God for four and a half centuries until an angel appears to a man named Zechariah. And he tells Zechariah that despite Zechariah's old age and his wife's old age, that they're going to have a son. We learn in the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 16, this is not an ordinary son. It's a very special one. He's a son that the angel says will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now Jesus will talk about this one later in life and this child who's born to Zechariah and his wife, this Elijah that was predicted earlier. And he's going to identify this one as Elijah. We know him as John the Baptist. John the Baptist called the nation of Israel to repentance. He called God's people back to God. And Jesus says in our passage, John chapter 5, verse 35, that even the Jewish leaders rejoiced in John the Baptist. They liked the light that he brought. They liked the, the idea that the Messiah was coming and that the Messiah was coming soon. They liked this call to the nation of Israel to get ready for the Messiah. They liked John's emphasis on repentance, on returning to the Lord. They liked the national revival that was taking place under John's watch. And then John the Baptist announced at one point, the waiting is over. The Messiah is here. John chapter 1, verse 29, this one who was baptizing saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said to the people around him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth down to verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. God did not send Jesus with all of his glory on display to overwhelm and amaze people, to frighten and terrify people. He sent Jesus with Jesus' power veiled so that we could get to know him, so we could get to trust that God actually wanted us for his friends rather than as his servants. God sent Jesus cloaked, but he didn't send him secretly. Didn't send him in, in secret so that we'd have no clue as to who he was and we just sort of you know, have to do our best picking out which one of the Messiah's really was the real one. God didn't do that. Instead, he sent someone in front of him, John the Baptist, to introduce him so that people would know who God really sent. And that testimony was for us. It's for you and me. It wasn't for Jesus. It's why Jesus says in verse 34 that he doesn't receive testimony from human beings. 
He said, I, I don't need John's testimony for myself. John couldn't tell Jesus anything about Jesus that Jesus didn't already know. But John's testimony is important. It's important for you. It's important for me. Because if we'll follow the path that John lays out, it gives us a reason to trust that Jesus was sent by God so that we can have eternal life. And the fact that God would give you this reason tells you something about God. It tells you something about his nature, about his character. It tells you he doesn't want you to miss out. At the very end of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the human children have gone into Narnia, have died in their own world. They're now in God's country. They're going to live there forever. And they're having an amazing time. They have brand new bodies that don't ache. They can do things like run as fast as a bird can fly. They don't grow tired. They're eating foods that seem to be made just for them. They feel like this is where they belong and that it's where they've always wanted to be. But they don't yet know that this is now their permanent home. They expect that the Christ figure, Aslan, is going to send them back to their former world at any moment like he has before. And that expectation shows on their faces. They're absolutely thrilled to be there, but they're holding back a little bit. They think it's all going to come crashing to an end. And Aslan says to them, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. That's the heart of God. He plans for you to be happy. As the psalmist puts it, God has pleasures at his right hand forevermore. He plans to stuff a world with things for you that are good, that are delightful. It's going to be a world that you recognize as what you've always wanted, always longed for, even though you can never say exactly what it was or, or what it would feel like. It's a world where you finally are going to be as happy as God means you to be. God's got something amazing planned for the next life. He wants you there. And he wants to save you from the coming judgment so that you can take part in that life. So he's made a way for you to know how to get there. He's given you a reason to believe that he sent Jesus to get you there. He wants you to have confidence that Jesus is the one that he sent so that you can concentrate on what Jesus says so that you can block out all those other voices. He doesn't want you taken in by a false Messiah, led away from himself because you just don't know who to believe. That's why John came baptizing. It was to advertise Jesus. It's God saying, here's Jesus, here's my son, the one that I sent to give you eternal life. Please listen to him because I don't want you to miss out. I want you and I want you to be with me forever. John the Baptist is the first witness to Jesus' authenticity. The second witness is everything that Jesus did. Verse 36, Jesus speaking, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John is a good witness. There's nothing wrong with him. But there's more. There's more testimony. There's greater testimony than John's. It's the works that Jesus, is di that Jesus did. Jesus is saying, don't just listen to my words. Pay attention to what I do. Because both my words and my actions say something about me. And what they say is, the Father has sent me here. Why do they say, those things say that the Father sent him? Because Jesus is doing and saying exactly the same things that the Father says and does. 
Jesus' teaching, his serving, his miracles, they're all in line with what God does. Go through the scriptures, study his works, and you realize that he's doing two things everywhere he goes. Number one, he's taking away the suffering that comes along with living on this planet, and he's restoring the world to what it was supposed to be, giving you a glimpse of what life is really supposed to be about. Think about the man that we studied last week, this one who was lying beside the pool of Bethesda. He had been in some kind of invalid state for 38 years before Jesus met him. His body was so weak, so useless, he couldn't get himself into the pool quickly enough. Somebody else always got there first. And in one moment, Jesus not only takes away whatever is wrong with his body, but Jesus restores his body. He renews it. The man is now strong. He's capable of not only standing up, but he can take care of himself in ways that he couldn't before. This man who earlier could not carry himself can now carry his bedroll. His muscles are not atrophied. They've been rejuvenated. Jesus has removed his sufferings, restored his health in an instant to what it should have been. And what do you see him doing there in that moment? You see him acting in line with that future resurrection, with the new creation that God keeps promising throughout Scripture. You see him acting in line with what God is going to do, create a world that has no sin or evil in it, that has no suffering or sickness in it, a world where things work right because everything that's wrong has been banished. When you see Jesus act, you can't help but see God at work. The works that Jesus does are the same works that God does. They're the works that are in line with God's character. And people knew it. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, he came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. We talked about him several weeks ago. And he said to Jesus in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Do you hear that? We know that you are a teacher come from God. Why do we know that? Because the signs that you do advertise that fact. The things that Jesus does tell you about who sent him. It's a little bit like Elisha. Elisha was the prophet who took over from Elijah. Elijah is well-known. Elisha, a little bit less so. Elijah was the one who called Israel to turn away from their idols and to repent. That's why he's the forerunner, the, the model for John the Baptist. But the prophet who came second, one who came after Elijah, Elisha, ended up doing far more miracles than Elijah did. We're told he was given a double portion of the spirit that empowered Elijah, that Elisha had twice as much of God's spirit activating him. And with that double portion, he did things like transforming a well of water. This well of water was causing death, ruining crops. Jesus trans uh, Elisha transformed it so that it sustained life so that it made the land productive. Or another time, dim hint, uh, echo of what happened when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He made water appear in the desert to save people's lives who had run out of water for themselves and their animals. Elisha healed a leper, raised a boy from the dead. He multiplied a small amount of food at one point so that everyone in a crowd had more than enough to eat and there was some left over. God's Spirit empowered Elisha to do miraculous things that healed a broken, suffering world. Things that hinted at what that next life was going to be like. Things that showed what you should expect from the one who comes after that future Elijah, the one who comes after John the Baptist. And so when Jesus comes after John the Baptist, 
And he does the same kind of things that Elisha did, just a whole lot more of them. People could start drawing the connection between the kinds of things Jesus was doing and the kinds of things that God has always been doing in this planet by his spirit throughout history. Jesus' works are another reason to believe that God is the one who's behind what he's doing. That it's God who sent Jesus to do these things. Because no one could do them if God had not sent them. And because they're in line with the kinds of things that God does. The works that Jesus did give you reasons to trust that God sent Jesus because God, what, he really does want you. And they give you a sense of what God is like. They give you a sense of his character. He wants you to see that the world he envisions for you is beautiful. That it's one full of bodies healed, bellies filled, people living happy, full, carefree, productive lives. He wants you to see he's not going to use his power to lord it over you. Look at what Jesus does. He doesn't hurt people with his power. He helps them. He doesn't crush people with his advantages. He uses what he has to raise others up. He doesn't insist people serve him. He serves them. He doesn't surround himself with the beautiful people. Who does he surround himself with? He surrounds himself with those who are weak, those who are broken, those who are hurting, those who are marginalized, those who are sinful. He enters all of their worlds and he does exactly the kinds of things to them with them that God's been doing since the day that sin and evil broke into his world to ruin it. Look at what Jesus does and you realize who it is that sent him. You realize no one else could have sent him. Think about your own life. Do you not yet look so happy as God means you to be? If that's so, look at the works Jesus did and believe. Believe that God sent him to give you a life with this God who's just too good to miss out on. John the Baptist is the first witness to Jesus. Jesus' works are the second. The third witness that he gives here is the scripture. Verse 39, it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Now this is good news for us because now we have a whole lot more material, a lot more reasons to believe that God sent Jesus. And yet there's a warning very sobering warning that comes with this witness. Because this witness is different than the other two witnesses. See, you can deny those other two witnesses. You can choose not to believe what John said. You can choose to believe that Jesus is empowered by something else other than God. You can deny those witnesses, but you have to be intentional to do that. You can't just fall into it. You have to make a conscious decision. The witness of Scripture is different. It is possible, say it this way, it's scary possible to read the scripture but read it wrong, to misread it, to read it for some other intention than God gave it. It's possible to do that and yet not know that that's what you're doing. You can have the right book but read it the wrong way and not know that that's what you're doing. So Jesus says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You search the scriptures, Jesus says. You diligently study the scriptures. You love scripture. You love studying it. You Israelites, you're known as the people of the book because of your absolute devotion to what God has said. You search the scriptures. 
And you do so for what seems like a good reason. You think that in the scriptures you have eternal life. You're not looking for something bad, some way to get ahead in life, to become rich and famous, to win friends and influence people. That's not what you're doing. You're searching because you think that in this book is the key to eternal life. But you don't understand that scripture only leads you to eternal life second if it leads you first to me. And then he looks at him and says, but you refuse to come to me. What's that mean? It means that they're missing the point of why God gave them the scripture. The scripture were to, was to tell the people standing there who Jesus was, but they were looking for the wrong thing, and therefore they didn't even recognize God when he stood there right in front of them. And he said to them, you don't realize you're doing it. You're relying, verse 45, on Moses to help you, but Moses won't. He'll accuse you. Why is that? It's because Moses did not write a list of rules and laws so that you could figure out how to save yourself from the coming judgment. Moses wasn't writing to lay out a system so that someone could work hard enough to deserve eternal life. Instead, verse 46, Jesus says, Moses wrote about me. Moses wrote about Jesus. But the people standing there missed that. They missed the central piece of Scripture. And because they missed that, they missed this witness to who Jesus is, they missed everything else that God was saying to them. That's because you don't find Jesus in just a couple isolated passages that are sprinkled throughout the Scripture. You find Jesus on every page. You find him in different ways, but he's there on every page. Let me give you a couple different ways that you find him. Sometimes you find him in very specific prophecies that tell you what you should expect the Messiah to be like. Prophecies like the one in the Garden of Eden, that there is one coming who will crush the serpent's head. Or a prophecy later in the book of Genesis that says it's from the tribe of Judah that this ruler, this snake crusher, is going to come. Or even later, how God will raise up another prophet for Israel, just like Moses. There are specific prophecies that point to Jesus, but there's a whole lot more. There are themes in Scripture that all point to Jesus. Consider the whole theme of law and sacrifice that Moses wrote about. All of that points to Jesus. The laws that God gave his people tell you what you have to be like if you want to be in God's presence, but they also tell you that nobody's completely ever lived all of them out except this one person. The Jewish leaders could accuse Jesus of not keeping their traditions, of not keeping their rules, their practices. No one ever accused him of breaking God's law and made that charge stick. Jesus was the only one who was ever holy according to God's definition. But because everyone else wasn't holy, Moses also wrote about sacrifice. He wrote about a bloody substitute that God would judge for your failures to keep his law instead of judging you. That was great news for those who had broken God's law, but it had a problem. No sacrifice was ever enough. They had to offer up those sacrifices over and over and over and over again because no animal could ever substitute and could never fully pay for what a human being had done. And so you read about the sacrifices, and as you read about the sacrifices, you're longing for a better one, one that could pay once for all for everything that you've done. Moses didn't write law and sacrifice as a means to save yourself, to make yourself good enough for God so that God would smile at you. 
He wrote those things so that you would be able to identify this one who was coming, who was good enough to be with God. This one whose sacrifice was good enough to pay for what you had done wrong. This one who could both pay for what you had done while at the same time giving you the holiness that he earned because he had kept the law. This one who would give you what you needed to stand in God's presence, sin removed, and the presence of real holiness. What Moses wrote, it's all about Jesus. Or read the narratives Moses wrote and try not to see Jesus. Try not to see Jesus as you read about Noah. How salvation from death and judgment came to one man because he was righteous in God's eyes. And because it came to one righteous man, it also came to everyone who was related to him and his family, although they didn't have any righteousness in and of themselves. Or try not to see Jesus as you read about the Passover lamb. This one who by its blood dies so that God's people don't die as God delivers his people from the power of slavery a power that they could not escape on their own. Or try not to see Jesus when Moses stands before God after the Israelites have worshipped the golden calf. Moses stands there and he intercedes for them. He confesses that they've sinned. He asks God to forgive them. Try not to see Jesus when Moses says, but God, if you won't forgive them, then blot my name out of your book. If you can't forgive them, God, then trade my life for theirs. God said no to Moses. He took Jesus up on that deal. God knew how much it would cost to have you long before Jesus was born. He sent him anyway. Let this amaze you. Jesus came anyway. That's how badly he wants you, and God wrote it on every page of Scripture. He filled Scripture with these pictures everywhere if scripture finds a home in you if verse 38 it abides in you if it lives in you you'll see jesus everywhere because that's what god talks about constantly it's his third witness that says to you no one has ever checked off all the boxes like jesus did everything that was ever talked about directly or indirectly about the coming messiah is completely totally fulfilled in this one person in Jesus. This is the one that God sent to save you from judgment so that you could be with him forever. Do not yet look so happy as God means you to be. Then let John lead you to Jesus and believe. Look at the works Jesus did and believe. Study the scripture that's all about Jesus. Study it diligently. Find him everywhere and believe. Lord Jesus, thank you that our faith is not a blind leap. Thank you that you did not leave us without a witness. Thank you that you didn't just give us one. You gave us many different that all point to you. Lord, come alive inside of us. Give us a longing and a hunger for you. Not just for the nice things that you offer us, but for you yourself. Lord, you're better than every one of those things that you have planned for us for all eternity. Lord, help us see that now. Help us enjoy you now. Let us not just hear these things and turn away from them. Give us a hunger. Give us a heart for you. 
And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.